0: Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. This book, you know, the letter to the Hebrews, of course, was written to Hebrews. That's why it's called the letter to the Hebrews. And uh, these are Hebrew believers. And we'll talk a little bit about them later on. But, you know, the first book, part of Hebrews, the first, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, eight or nine chapters, uh, just been all doctrine, really some rich meat, you know, just some good stuff to learn. And then when we get to chapter 10, and then chap moving into chapter 11, there's some application and, and moving on through the rest of the chapters. Okay, what do you do with what you've learned? And that's always my prayer when I go through and I teach a message. It's like, okay, you've given us some facts, Pastor. That's great to know. But what do I do with it? So it's always my prayer that we would find and that you yourself would find an application as the spirit speaks to your heart. What do you do with this? Well, this chapter actually is it's it's not too difficult because this chapter is all about faith. And uh, it's the fa- it's it's really living faith. It's practical faith. What do you do with your faith? Okay, you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross; he's your Lord and Savior. Um, that's great. I mean, that's the foundation. We're saved by faith. But what do you do with that faith? And that's what we're going to be looking at here in chapter eleven: practical faith. What does it look like? And the writer to the Hebrews he's trying to give these Hebrew Christians some examples from the Old Testament. For, of faith. And so we'll be looking at that. But there's five observations that I want to make as, and bring out just as we're looking at this chapter before we actually dig in. If you don't know by now, the theme is Faith. The theme is faith. Why do I say that? Well, it occurs 24 times. The word faith literally occurs 24 times in chapter 11. Faithful occurs one time. And again, like I said earlier, the emphasis is not on saving faith. I mean, say we're saved by, by faith in Christ Jesus, but this is practical faith. What do you do with that? Or living faith. And so that's the first Uh, application you know back in in uh, chapter 10 verse 38 we read and we talked about it uh, last week Uh, he quotes out of uh, uh, Habakkuk I believe it's Habakkuk Uh, Hebrews 10 verse 38 now the just shall live by faith but if anyone draws back my soul has no pleasure in him and that 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 quotation is quoted a couple different places in the New Testament and the focus right here is on living faith. The just shall live by faith. And so, like I mentioned earlier, there's some examples uh, in the Old Testament, Old Testament saints who lived by faith. That's the first observation. The second observation is this. If you go through the book of Hebrews or, or through chapter 11, you'll notice that the examples are given in chronological order starting with creation and going all the way through the Old Testament prophets. Why is that the case? Well, there was never a time in man's history when faith in God is not important. It was never a time when it is. Faith has been important. And the chronological order is also significant for another reason. And the reason is the examples of living by faith The ones that we'll be looking at this morning, these examples occurred prior to the giving of the law, of the Old Testament law. Now, as we go through that chapter, there are saints, Old Testament saints that are mentioned after historically they were around after the law had been given. But what you'll notice if you look at this chapter is the writer really digs in and spends a lot of time with the ones that existed before or that lived before the faith was given. In fact, you'll notice that the law is never mentioned in chapter 11. Now, this is important because the reason why this letter was written was the Hebrew believers, these were Jewish people. They had come to believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. They had put their trust in Christ for their faith. But as time went on, it became kind of like tempting to go back to their old system, to go back to Judaism. A couple different reasons, especially for those if they lived in Jerusalem, the temple's right there. Everything's focused and central on the temple, on the worship of, you know, the sacrifices and everything that took place through Judaism. And now they're following Jesus Christ. So the temptation is to go back. Maybe they're family members. Maybe they were the only Christian in their family. And so there was all this pressure, like, why aren't you doing, why aren't you doing what you've been raised to do and everything? And, you know, trying to share your faith with the family members that don't understand, it probably was difficult. Not only that, but the, the apostles said, man, Jesus Christ is coming back soon. He said he was, and he hadn't come back yet. Now, when the letter was written, the temple was still standing. And so the draw to go back to the law to go back to sacrifices and to go back to the, the system of, of the commandments and everything, that would have been a temptation. And so I think it's, that's very significant that the examples that he really goes into in detail with, they existed prior to the giving of the law. Romans 3.28, Paul says this, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith, Apart from the deeds of the law you can go through the Old Testament and read You'll never read that there was any Old Testament saint ever that was declared righteous prior to the giving of the law You you won't find it in fact as we'll see when we get to verse 6 without faith. It is impossible to please God The next observation that we make is that death figures very prominently in chapter 11 The terms dead or dying occur eight times in this chapter where you actually read the letters, but it's inferred many more times in the different examples. Why is that significant? Well, faith removes the fear of death. That's one of the things. And also, faith looks beyond physical death to the fulfillment of God's promises. And then the last observation is that faith is not the silver bullet that prevents physical suffering and death. Though as we get, as we progress through chapter 11 towards the end, the writer will say, you know, these saints, they died, never receiving, but they were always looking forward to the promise. And, and so death figures prominently and faith isn't the silver bullet that prevents physical death and suffering. That's contrary to the teaching of, of the faith movement faith what does faith do it enables a person to endure suffering and to endure death because it allows a person to see beyond the immediate to to the future to eternal the eternal reward so what we're going to do now is we're going to start giving looking at the examples of men and women and remember i said in the beginning that it's practical faith it's living faith and as we go through these examples We'll read about examples of men and women who heard the word of God. They believed what they heard. They believed God's word. And then they acted on that belief. And here in chapter 11, in fact, we call it the Hebrew hall of faith um, because they're commended by God for their faith. And did I pray before we started? I don't think I did, did I? You know, it's like I don't remember. Okay, well, you know what? We're going to pray before we dig into this chapter now. So let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, we thank you for this uh, this time. We thank you for your word, Lord. I pray that you might fill me with your Spirit as I share your word with your people this morning. Lord, I pray that as we go through this, Lord, we might be encouraged. We might be able to imply uh, apply, I should say, uh, what we learn, what we hear from you into our own lives this morning. And so we thank you for your, this this time together. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So let's start out reading Hebrews 11 uh, uh, verses 1 and 2. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. Faith is the substance of things not seen. That word is hypotasis, and it means to place or set under that which is, has a firm foundation or is firm. In fact, some of your translations might say that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the guarantee or the proof of things hoped for. You know, if you think about it, physical eyesight is the substance or it's the foundation. We see things and we believe things based on what we see. You know, we have this understanding, we we see whatever, and we go, okay, seeing is believing, so I see it, and so that's the foundation of what I see. It often influences our actions, what we see. Well, faith is the substance or the foundation of what we see in the invisible world, in the spiritual world. Faith influences our actions in spite of what we see in the material world. You know, I, I've got this huge crisis in my life and, and that's all I can see. In fact, I can't even see past this, this mountain of debt or this mountain of, you know, some, you know, relational situation that I'm in or, you know, my, I've just lost my job or some major thing. You get an announcement that your, your health is gone, you know, and you've got some disease or something like that. there's this, I can't see around it. Well, faith allows you to see beyond to the invisible, to the spiritual, despite what you see Right in front of you. Also, faith is the substance. Right? Just think of substance. It's like something tangible. Something that you have, you know, you can touch it, you can taste it, you can something that's there. And faith is not blind hope. It's not just, well, I I, I you know, I, I hope things are gonna turn out differently. And it's also not an intellectual judgment. There's a lot of people that have an intellectual judgment about, about Jesus Christ and about, about heaven and about, you know, eternity. They have this intellectual judgment. Faith is not those. It's very practical. It's something that you rely on. It's something that you act upon. It's something that you cling to, especially when you're going through a difficult time. Faith is the evidence or the conviction of things not seen. See, faith enables you and I to see what others can't see and to do what others can't do. I like this quote. Warren Wiersbe quoted J. Oswald Sanders in his commentary. It says this, faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as present and the invisible as seen. Let's look at verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which, were, which are seen were made of things which are visible. Oh, excuse me, let me read that over again. <laughs> by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. I thought something didn't sound right when I was reading that. Um, starting with verse 4, again, we're going to get... F- literal examples of people with specific applications of faith they had specific circumstances and they responded in in a certain way but verse three interesting is he's speaking to not only to the readers but to you and i by faith we understand we understand this specific belief is common to all people Everyone is in the same boat as, as far as faith regarding creation or the, or the beginning of life or where our universe came from. You know, there's only two explanations. There's only two explanations for the origin of life and of the universe. There's the speculation based on theories. And if you're in school today, they won't say, you know, when I was in school, they talked about the evolutionary theory. And you know the science books—they were all talking about Darwin and all that stuff. But back in my day, they still called it a theory. Now it's not even called a theory. It's just you just—it's fact, you know. Well, it's not. It still is a theory because nobody was there to observe it. You know, nobody's there to observe it. You can't repeat it. And so, faith—excuse uh, me—you either have, you either speculate, and that's—it requires faith too, on based on a theory or. You have the revelation based on God's word. What God said. Both require faith. You know, if you go to Genesis 1 1, in the beginning, those very first letters, the very first words in the New Test or in the Old Testament excuse excuse me, it's interesting that creation is mentioned first and foremost. It's foundational. Because what you believe regarding the origin of the universe, it has an impact on everything in your life. It impacts just about every aspect of our lives. Listen, were you created with a purpose? Or were you created by God? If you were, were you created with a purpose? Or were you just the result of random mutations over millions and millions of years, and you just happened to exist? Well, that that has an impact on how you live your life. Is human life valuable or is it not valuable? Are we any better than the animals? Or are we just another species of animals on this planet? You know, it, it has an impact on everything. It also ties in with the description of faith in verse 2. Belief in the creation of the visible universe by God, it's a conviction of something that's not apprehensible by sense. We don't see creation being, you know, happening every day, but we go back to God's word. And we trust what God said about the universe, about the beginning of life. You know, it's interesting. That's one of the things that is on attack in our culture right now is creation. You know, that that is always on attack. Did God really say that? Uh, It's the lie from the enemy in the very beginning. Did God actually say that? I mean, can you really trust what God says? And so creation is being attacked. It's being ridiculed. But it's the bedrock of our understanding about life, and it impacts every aspect of our lives. So the writer starts right in the very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God. Verse four. By faith, Abel offered to Cain, uh, excuse me. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And through it, he being dead, still speaks. So he's, I mean, he's just going not too far from Adam. You know, Cain is Adam's son and Abel's son. So, I mean, we're talking right at the very beginning of human history, talking about Abel. And if you look in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. He was a farmer and he raised crops. And so he brought an offering of, you know, he he harvested his crops and he gathered it together and he offered it to the Lord. We also read that Abel, now Abel wasn't a farmer. Abel was a keeper or tender of sheep. He raised sheep and he offered, it says, the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And it says in Genesis that the Lord respected Abel and his offering. In fact, Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 calls uh, Abel, uh, righteous Abel. But it says there in Genesis, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. You know, as a kid, I remember that story in Sunday school. You know, here's Cain is, you know, he's worked, he's he's gathered this grain and he's offering it to the Lord and God doesn't want it. God doesn't like it. God doesn't accept it. I go, man, that doesn't seem fair. I mean, he worked for it. It was, his, it was the produce of his work. And what's the difference between a farmer offering his grain to the Lord and a sheep herder offering a lamb? Why, why was that accepted? Listen, it wasn't just their offerings, but there was something about their person. Their sacrifices probably reflected what was already in their heart. God was either pleased or displeased. He was, he was pleased with Abel's offerings and he was displeased with Cain's offering. Why? Well, it goes back to the garden. You know, before Adam and Eve sinned, there was no death. Death is a result of sin. There was no death. After Adam and Eve sinned, death entered into the world. Well, what did Adam and Eve do when they sinned? they realized that they were naked they were aware of their nakedness what did they do they got some fig leaves and they made some really nice you know tunics for themselves out of fig leaves they covered themselves with fig leaves but in genesis 3:21 god does something it says also for adam and his wife the lord god made tunics of skin and clothe them. See, Adam and Eve tried to clothe themselves. But God says, no, I'll provide a covering. I'll provide clothing for you. And so a a lamb was offered. That was the very first sacrifice in the Bible. A lamb was slayed. This the first physical death was a lamb. Now, this is my belief. My belief is that the Lord God sacrificed a lamb for them and taught them about the need to offer a blood, a blood sacrifice for sin. This is even, I mean, the law didn't come around till many, many generations later. But I believe that God was showing them, hey, sin has a price, and that price is death. And so blood has to be shed. And so God, I believe, sacrificed a lamb, taught this to Adam, and then went ahead and clothed them with the skin of the animal. In Romans 10:17, it says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Well, Abel, he either heard from the Lord himself this, what God had told Adam, or he heard from Adam. Maybe Adam later on, you know, said, hey, Abel, and probably sat down Cain, too, I'm sure both of them. Hey, this is what's required when we sin. God wants a sacrifice for sin. Well, Abel heard what God wanted. He believed what God wanted, and he obeyed God. He offered an acceptable sacrifice. Now, in contrast to Cain, it would appear that Cain offered a sacrifice of his own effort and of his own choosing. Arthur Pink says this He offered to God the fruits of the ground which God had cursed. He presented the product of his own toil, the work of his own hands, and God refused to receive it. The thing about Abel's faith, you know, he offered a sacrifice that was pleasing to God. He wasn't rewarded on earth. In fact, he was killed. Cain was envious. He hated, God, hated Abel, and he killed his own brother. Abel was the first martyr to die for his faith. But as it says here, but his blood still speaks. It still speaks today of the value of the eternal. Going on to verse 5. By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Again, you got to go back to the book of Genesis. What do we what do we learn about Enoch. Well, in Genesis 5:21 and 22, I'll read it to you. It says, "Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters." So, who was Enoch? Well, he was the seventh from Adam, the seventh descendant from Adam. Only he and Noah are described in the Bible as someone who have walked with God. What does it mean to walk with God? Well, walking—it's not just you know—he had a certain walk. No, it's talking about how he lived his life. It's his activity, his day, what he did day to day. He walked with God. You know, in Amos three three, it says, "Can two walk together unless they are agreed?" How could God? How could Abel? Or excuse me. How could Enoch walk with God if he wasn't in agreement with God? What am I talking about? I'm talking about reconciliation. Enoch walked with God because by faith he walked in reconciliation with the holy God because Enoch was a sinner. Sin had already entered the human race and yet he walked with the holy God. Though he was a sinner, he had a right relationship with God and that's possible for every one of us here today. We can walk with God. We're sinners. I'm still a sinner, but I can walk in a right relationship day by day with a with holy God. Psalm 89, verse 15 says, Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. Walking, by, uh, walking with God also means walking in the light. By faith, Enoch walked with God in the light. In other words, he was walking in obedience. He wasn't walking in the darkness of sin. There wasn't like hidden sin in his life. He dealt with sin whenever it occurred. Again, he wasn't perfect. He was a sinner, but he wasn't harboring known sin or he wasn't resisting the conviction of God through the Holy Spirit. Enoch walked with God and as a result, he became a witness for God. What's interesting, the Bible tells us that he's the father of Methuselah. You guys know who Methuselah is? Methuselah was the oldest man that ever lived. He lived 969 years, just shy of a 1,000 years. His name means when he is dead, it shall come. Chuck Missler says this. He says his name means his death shall bring. What's very fascinating about it is that the year that Methuselah died, the flood came, Noah's flood. It was the year that Methuselah died. So it's very possible that, th- that through the naming of Methuselah, Enoch was prophesying of the coming flood. And Enoch, again, he was a witness in Jude 1 verse 14. It says, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. He's talking about the men that Jude is describing in his in his epistle, saying, behold, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints. So Enoch was even prophesying about the end of the world, of the judgment that would be coming. Again, the interesting thing is that Methuselah lived 969 years. The year that he died was the year that Noah's flood occurred. You think about that. God prolonged judgment for almost 1,000 years. Noah, we'll start talk to him a little bit. We'll talk not to him. (laughs) We'll be talking about him shortly. But Noah is a picture of the Jewish people who are going to go through God's judgment, the tribulation. They'll be saved, but they're going to go through it. Enoch is a picture of the church. Says he walked with God and he was not for God took him. He's a picture of the church. The church is going to be caught up. The word is harpazo. We get the word rapture from it. Prior to judgment, you know, prior to the judgments being poured out on the earth, that's when Enoch is going to be taken, or excuse me, that's when the church is going to be raptured. And so Enoch is a a Old Testament picture of the church. Well, let's go back to verse 5 and move on to verse 6. Again, verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. And was not found because God had taken him, for before he has, was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who, excuse me, who diligently seek Him. Notice what the writer says. He didn't say, "You know, it's, it's difficult to please God without faith," and he says it's impossible to please God without faith. Well, how do we please him? He says it right here in this verse. You believe that he is. You believe who he says he is. You believe who he is, who he reveals himself to be through his word. And then you believe that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. You know, the the Lord God is just a prayer away from any one of us. If you seek the Lord and you're serious, He'll let, he'll let himself be found. He'll reveal himself to you. But not only is he our rewarder, he's our reward itself. In Genesis 15, Abraham is standing there. Looking, God says, look up to the sky and count the stars in, in heaven. So shall your descendants be. And, and Abraham didn't have any children. But A- the Lord God said something interesting to Abraham in that chapter. In verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1, he says, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Let me ask you this rhetorically this morning. Is God your reward this morning? Are you looking for other things? Is God your reward? You know, I think the only way that you can come to that appreciation that that God is your reward is through suffering. It's through going through a a difficulty where there's there's no hope, and yet God's your hope. God's there. He he reveals himself in the darkest times that we go through. Moving on to verse 7. By faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear and prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah was the grandson of Methuselah. We just talked about Methuselah, the man who lived 969 years. Noah was his grandson. So Noah would have been the great-grandson of Enoch. Noah's father was a guy by the name of Lamech. If you go to uh, chapter five in Genesis, you don't have to turn there, but there's a there's a there's a genealogy going from Adam all the way down to Noah, and if you and his sons, and if you read that, it's very interesting because you find out how long each person was uh, was alive. You found out you find out you know they they lived so many years and then they had their son, and and, and that that's where we get this genealogy from Adam through Noah. Well, like I said, Noah was the great-grandson of Enoch. He was the son of Lamech. And if you sit down and do the math in that chapter, you'll discover that Lamech was 56 years old when Adam died. Adam was still alive all those years. Through all those generations, can you imagine? Can you imagine going up to Adam, saying, Adam, what, what 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 was life like before sin? occurred in the world. Well, let me tell you, probably tears, you know, rolling down his eyes. We were talking on the way back from our retreat and, you know, you think of all the suffering that's in the world uh, and, you know, wouldn't that be kind of cool if we get up to heaven and there's a place, you know, Adam and Eve are just right there at the entrance and you can like slap them. What were you thinking, man? (laughs) Why'd you do that? (laughs) All that suffering I had, you know, to go through. But I can imagine, I can just imagine, you know, Adam just Talking and and you know just probably crying as he's sharing it. So that's fascinating. To me, that's it's if you do the math, it's just it's you learn a lot. It's it's interesting. So Lamech was fifty-six years old when Adam died. So all that knowledge, all that revelation of what happened, man, it was fresh for these people that lived in those days. Well, we read earlier, faith is the substance of of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And we just read a few minutes ago that Noah was divinely warned of things not yet seen. What was he divinely warned of that nobody knew about? It was rain. The world at that time didn't know about rain, let alone a flood. A flood? What's a flood? Why didn't they know that? Because in Genesis chapter 2, We read, it says, The Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. So prior to the flood, there wasn't rain. God had a different way that he provided water for the plants to grow. So more than likely, of course, none of us were there, right? But more than likely, it had never rained. Last week, we were reading in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. We talked about that. What was the day that that's approaching? This is the day of Christ. It's the return of Christ for the church. And it's also the day of judgment for the world. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, verse 36 and 37. He says, but of that day an hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the son of man be. Jesus is saying before he returns to the earth, the earth is going to be quite a bit like Noah's day. And so you can go back to Genesis. You can read and say, what was it like in Noah's day? Well, let me give you a few verses here. The generation that Noah lived in jo- Genesis six verse five. Then the Lord saw the wickedness. The, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In verse eleven, the earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. What was the day of Noah like? Well, Genesis 6-1, the population was exploding. You know, this this is just an interesting thing. Again, you go back to the story of creation that's revealed to us in scriptures. And, you, you, you know, it says Adam, and especially I think it's Genesis chapter 5. Adam, you know, he lived so many years, I think 130 years, and he had Seth. And then Adam lived another 800 and so years and, and had other sons and daughters. And then he died. I think 830 years is how long Adam lived, something like that. He had all these sons. Can you imagine having sons and daughters for 800 years, how big your family reunion would be? you'd have generations of kids upon kids upon kids. I I don't have any proof, but my belief is that the planet was populated quite, quite a lot by the time the flood occurred. Because you think of all the generations, it just exponentially just, boom, the Lord said, God said, be fruitful and multiply. Man, they did. So it was an exploding population. Genesis six verse two, we read that it, the, that the, uh, that culture, that generation, were sexually perverted. There was sexual perversion in there. There was demonic activity. Genesis six two as well. Genesis six five. There was constant evil in the heart of man. They were always. Every intent of their heart was wickedness. And then verse eleven of chapter six, there was widespread corruption. And violence. Now, I know the United States is not the, the sign of God's return. You know, we always sometimes think with it, a United States mindset of, of, of the world and we're not the center of the universe. But look at our culture, what's happened in the last in the last year and a half. How much change, how much wickedness is just, you know, things that were a year ago were, you know, were not bad. Now they're wicked, they're evil. And the things that are wicked and evil, now they're good. Man, how have things changed? And the corruption, you know, I'm at the point, one of the pastors was sharing at the, at the men's conference, actually was the one that was the main speaker, he's like, you know, I, gotta stop, I had to stop listening to cable news, man. I, I, I just got to change my focus and, and get into the word and stuff because you can get really riled up. There's so much corruption going on, and there's so much violence going on. We are living in the last days. These are the days of Noah. There's no doubt about it. We are approaching that time. We are approaching that day. But you know what's interesting? Describing all that wickedness in verse 8 of Genesis 6, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You know that's the first mention in the Bible of grace? You think about that. There's exploding perversion, demonic activity. The wicked are constantly doing wicked. That's all I can think about is doing wickedness. There's corruption and violence, but there's God's grace. In the climax of violence and sin and corruption, we see God's grace. Again, Methuselah lived 969 years and then the flood came. Noah lived 600 years before the flood. You know, we look at the world around us, and I don't know if you do, but I, I look at the stuff and go, Lord God, why are you allowing this? Why aren't you judging? Why aren't you coming down and changing? Why are, man, the wickedness that's going on. Well, I think the answer is God's grace. God's patient. He's loving. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So again, I mentioned earlier that Noah... He was divinely warned of things not yet seen. And I mentioned that's rain. Can you imagine Noah's generation? You know, what's rain? A flood? What, what is a flood? You got to be out of your mind. Why are you building a boat? You know, it's like, what? What are you thinking? Well, the same could be said for our generation. What are you talking about? A rapture of the church? That's ridiculous. You mean people are just going to disappear off the planet? <laughs> I can't believe that, you know. You're reading the book of Revelation. You mean there's going to be these demon creatures that are going to actually come out of the abyss and torture those that are on the planet during the tribulation? Come on, that's, I've never seen anything like that. That's ridiculous. That's the same attitude, undoubtedly, that the people in Noah's day had. And yet it happened. Peter describes Noah in his second letter, 2 Peter 2.5, as a preacher of righteousness. You know, he wasn't primarily known as a preacher. He was just a man that God called and said, Noah, build an ark to save you and your family. His sermon was done with his hands, and he acted in faith and obedience to the Lord. And his, his life, guys, fathers, his life impacted his family because they entered into the ark and were saved also. Warren Wearsby says, Noah's mind was warned, his heart was moved with fear, and his will acted on what God told him. So he built the ark. Well, I just kind of, you know, as I was going through these examples in Hebrews 11, I was thinking, well, what are the things that we can glean out of there? What, what can we apply in our own lives? Again, think about Abel. By faith, he didn't rely on his own Righteousness. He, he worshiped God according to God's revealed commands. He's an example of obedience in faith, living an, uh, an obedient life, living, you know, pleasing God. What does God want for me? And living according to that. Enoch, remember he walked with God and was not for God took him. By faith, he lived his daily life in a right relationship with God. He walked with God. There was, there was, he, was, he kept short accounts with God. You know, and he was a sinner, but, he, but he, didn't, he didn't, you know, harbor known sin. He dealt with it. His life, his, what he was is an example of daily consistent faith. And it's possible for you and I to walk with God as well in that same way. And Noah, by faith, he stayed focused on God's will for his life. You think about it. God said, Noah, I want you to do this, and he did it. And how many years, how many hundreds of years did it take for him to build that ark while everyone's mocking him, saying, what are you, what are you doing? Even, what is rain? rain you, know, you mean water's going to come from the sky? You know." His culture didn't shape him. It was a wickedest culture. His culture didn't shape him, and it didn't deter him from carrying out the Lord's specific will for his life. You know, like I said earlier, there's changes all around us. It seems every norm in our society is being challenged and it's being rejected. Things are getting flipped up, up upside down. Well, for you, does that going to shape, is that going to change how you live your life? Are you molded by that? Or are you got Lord, what do you want from me in my life? God has a general will for us. He's not willing that any perish but all come to repentance. That's God's will. I can say unequivocally, that's God's will for each one of you this morning, that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as your Savior. But God also has a specific will. God called me to be a pastor. He didn't call you necessarily. He might have. Maybe, maybe he's called someone in here to you know, be a pastor. He hasn't called everyone to go and be a, a missionary off in Timbuktu. But he has a specific will for each one of us. And so we need to hear what God's will is, and then we need to stay focused on that. This is what God's called me to do. This is what I'm going to do. I don't care about the society around me. That's why I'm like, you know what? I hear all the, the, the theories of all the, the you know, conspiracies, and you know, and some of it I'm like, you know, it could very well be true, but you know what? That's, I, I'm not going to focus on that. God's called me to be a pastor, to shepherd you folks. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to get caught up in that stuff. I've got a calling and I want, I want to stay focused. That's what Noah did. He just stayed focused on what God called him to do. He, that's what his example is. We need to be stay focused on God's heart. What's God's heart in a day like today? I, you know, I stand here and I go, I, I get just as angry as probably all of you when I read about all these different things that are so unjust. And it's just like, man, I just get angry. But what's God's heart? God's heart is grace. And he's not willing that any uh, come to... The Bible, in fact, says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Mm -hmm. Judgment and condemnation is not God's heart. Again, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. But you know what the temptation is for us? Temptation is to be like Jonah. Do you remember Jonah? You know, God told him to go to Nineveh to preach to the Ninevites, very wicked people, he didn't want to go. You know the story. He got on a boat going the other way, and you know he ended up getting swallowed by a fish, and he got spit up. He actually got vomited up on, on the shore of Nineveh. Here's this guy with no hair, bleached because of the stomach acids of this whale for three days. Looked like a ghost. He's walking through there preaching. The entire population of Nineveh come to repentance, over 100,000, a minimum 100,000. It's like a 3 days journey walking through this city. They all come to repentance, and what does, Noah, or what does Jonah do? He gets up on a mountain. He's like, "Man, I want to watch the fire and brimstone, man. I want to watch it happen. I want And that's why he's just—I can't wait till these people are judged. And that's his heart. And what God speaks to him says, "Noah," or Jonah. I'm paraphrasing very heavily, but that's not my heart. That's not my heart. And so for us, let's not be like Jonah, sitting on a mountaintop waiting for God's judgment to fall on all the wicked people around us, and they are wicked. They are deserving condemnation. You know what? So am I. I deserve condemnation. So do you. Let's not be like Jonah. Let's be like God. Let's focus on God's grace. You know, there are people that are lost and dying and going to hell right now. Let's focus on them. Let's share the gospel with them. Let's be about ministry to this world around us. So wickedness was climaxing in Noah's day. But guess what? Romans 5 verse 20 Moreover, the law entered that the offenses might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded. I love that. This morning, we're going to have communion. Before we do that, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. I'll have the worship team come on up, and we'll get ready for communion. Communion here is open to anyone. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, man, you are invited to come to the table the tables right here in front. The way we do worship here in, in Calvary Chapel is the worship team will, will start leading in worship. You can come on up and, and your, as, you, as you're ready to take a cracker and take a, juice, a cup of juice and bring it back to your chair and then we've all had it. We'll, we'll partake together as one family together. But I want to pray first before we go to uh, start communion. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I thank you for these specific, practical examples of faith. And Lord God, when we look at our culture around us, it doesn't seem to be much different than Noah's culture. Just as your word said, Lord, we know that you're returning soon. But Lord, I pray our focus would not be on judgment, would not be on condemnation, but would be on grace. Lord, that we be praying for people, that we would be loving people, Lord, that we would be an example, that, we, that our lives would be an example of your love and of your grace and of your mercy. Lord, we thank you that you were merciful and patient with each one of us. And Lord, we pray that many people will come to faith to you in these last days, and may we be a part of what, you, what you're doing in this last generation. So we thank you and we love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.